Hey, everybody. Welcome to No Small Thing, the podcast dedicated to helping you live a less certain and more curious life. I'm Scott. And I'm Macy. Welcome to episode number 96. <laughs> it's always a question. <laughs> well, no, I think it's 97 because last week wasn't Enneagram, was it? What was so last week? Last week was Steven. <gasps> so it has to be 97, I 97? think. 97? We don't know our own hey, podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode <laughs> number 97. Cut, cut. Repeat. <laughs> Start over. <laughs> Okay, so this episode, you've We've already it in recorded the title. It. We've already recorded it. We're giving you the intro. It's an interview ep- episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was an interview with a Sean Crawley. Who yes. What, you saying yes? I'm just, I'm saying yes, it is. <laughs> You're right, it is. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> and th- this interview was, I don't know. I mean, I feel like often i love our interviews but this one felt particularly powerful and Mm -hmm. i'm the one doing the editing right now and it's really powerful listening back and rehearing some of the things that he's saying and being able to hear him again all i can say is everybody get ready i hope you're curious i hope you're open to what he has to say because i think what he's saying and how he's saying it is so so beautiful and so necessary yeah so I'm pretty excited for folks to to listen to this one. People should be excited. Yeah. Um, It was like a kindred spirit because we like, as you all know, long conversations. We don't like really cutting them off and we often have a hard time cutting them off. And it was very obvious right off the bat that he was not here to make it a quick, speedy, get it, get in, get out type of conversation. And he was, very pleased to just share mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. talk and in the best of ways in the best of ways yeah i think he really like had the heart of the we're here for the conversation and he took his time getting to his answers because i he even explained this from the beginning he is talking about a lot of different things happening at once and um had a very interdisciplinary way of viewing things so everything required a lot of space also, y'all, Ruben is here with us to do this intro, and Ruben was here with us for this interview. So here's Ruben. <laughs> yeah, I am, <laughs> as I think you know, I've s- said several times, I don't listen to the podcast. <laughs> Although His I, favorite <laughs> meme. <laughs> <laughs> Although I enjoy, I mean, having you record at our house. I mean, I was uh, some kind of osmosis. So yeah. maybe I've always n- listened to this podcast. Uh, <laughs> You're featured. You're My featured on the yeah, podcast. I'm a feature on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I was so excited. I I was really nervous hmm. because, okay, this, w- you know, I'm in the academia and kind of, there are, you know, like kind of celebrities in your field, right? I mean, um, I actually, I've, ne- I, I've, I had not read any of his works before this, but I was, uh, but but he knew the people that I like love whose works are kind of like, I find like beautiful and like, so like, like opening and just like, so stimulating Uh, and kind of like uh, reading like um, some of the stuff that he's written that I've been able to read and being able to talk to him. And like, I was like very, I was sort of starstruck (laughs) because, um, (laughs) And also, I'll, so yeah, this is kind of like from like the perspective of someone who's in the academia, but because it's like, I do, I kind of like, I do queer theory. I do kind of like, it's weird because um, he, I want to say that he, I mean, he has gr- 
like so many insights into kind of like queerness but i don't think queer theory is like its own field that i think he's not specifically but i but i think he would kind of maybe well he kind of described himself as doing like black studies and and and, uh performance studies well i'm not and sound and i'm like these are all things that i uh maybe i'm not specializing in all of them or like particular aspects of them because like you know black studies performance studies just by the titles themselves you can sense that there are probably like so many things in them uh and like even sound studies so i was like this is someone who i'm like looking up to who's kind of like work i can model my own uh after who you know i'll probably cite <laughs> like is probably going to be on my list hmm. Hmm. and one thing that i think i found particularly encouraging was because um i think i came from like a very particular standpoint to academia uh, this is actually one thing that i i, I didn't bring up but i i could i resonated strongly with but in the interview is it okay if i talk about the interview in advance Please, a little bit that's what we're doing where uh he said that uh you know he wanted to like go to seminaries he wanted to finish his like school like his 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 uh his undergrad studies because he's like i just can't go home i honestly think most people in the academia are just people who don't want to go home (laughs) 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 because that's how i felt like you know like i was like i graduated from utah and it's like nope i'm not leaving (laughs) keep studying yeah and uh i did i did actually something that was like not like (laughs) Like I've had professors tell me like what you did, I would not tell people other people to do, which was apply. It's less of like the year right after you graduate from from undergrad, but like at the same institution, because uh, usually, uh, like p- graduate programs don't like that. They want people from other programs. Um, but I was also kind of like I don't want to go home, <laughs> so. W- this all roundabout way of saying like he he's someone who i think has such like personal stakes in like in like doing his intellectual work i mean you know like in a lot you know it's not exclusively intellectual and i think it really uh came through when he was like oh i'm doing this first of all you know his book that is that i we encourage everyone to buy uh called the lonely letters was published through duke if you're this is a niche another niche thing but i feel like if you're a u.s a scholar based in, in the u.s duke is like one of the most prestigious uh things you could publish on and it's not because they're like so uppity but it's because they're like always they always like publish new and exciting things and like cutting edge research hmm. in the humanities and social sciences and other things you know you know like i so when I, uh, so it's like, it's a big, big deal. Like that. I just want to like, you know, from the perspective of someone who's kind of like, yes. I mean, does it matter? Maybe not. I mean, you know, if it was published somewhere else, would it still be great? I'm sure. But it's encouraging that he is, what I find really encouraging is that he managed to find like a medium that is both really, um, personal, but in a way that like the personal is never, separated from like the social the intellectual the political like everything right i mean all those you'll you'll hear in their interview like the construction of a person can only go so far 
and it's 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 not something that is enough for like thinking about a lot of things um so i was like very i'm like oh i can do and i feel like i that's the kind of work that i've always wanted to do is like i don't do just something to kind of like figure things out but i'm like i'm trying to survive through like my mm. work and i feel like he just models that so i was like also like s very inspired that's <laughs> i feel like i said everything all at once <laughs> but yeah the, i think ruben and i walking home or walking after the interview talking we were both kind of reminiscing and talking about the way Ashawn it kind of is studying something and it's in an intellectual like it's in the intele intellectual world but he's also putting that into practice and his work is the practice of what he's studying and that's what I think this kind of conversation is kind of for everybody so it's is a conversation where it's appealing to someone like Reuven who's academic but I think Ashan is such a prime example of someone who's actually the way he writes and speaks and relates is so personable and so from his own perspective that I think anyone listening could hear something and learn something from what he's doing. Absolutely. Ashan. We have to say Ashan. Ashan. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. I'm sure he'll be fine. Ashan. That's what I was say, been saying for a long time, but he helped us say his name, right? <laughs> Ashan. Um, so I'm just going to read his bio on the university of Virginia, just as a quick intro. But um, he, he got on my radar because he wrote an amazing piece, which everybody can go Google or look up. It's very easy. You just Google search Kanye West, Kanye West, Ashawn Crawley, NPR, and you'll get a, an amazing write-up slash so review good. slash critique of Kanye's last album, which was that gospel album. Um, and <laughs> which I was like, we did trash all Which we trash, yeah. But like show. he had the more sophisticated way of saying it from – a person who grew up in the black Pentecostal church and has studied and lived this his whole mm -hmm. life. So I, I just found it so profound. Um, so I was, I had to look him up and I was like, man, if this is a person I can follow on Instagram or reach out to in any way, I would be stupid not to. And so then um, if you guys want to follow us on Instagram, that'd be great. We have we an Instagram, Instagram account. We post <laughs> all the time. Yeah. We're getting a new image. We're doing <laughs> We're new stuff. Everybody <laughs> at no small thing. Give us a follow. <laughs> It'll be fun. Uh, in the stories I've been, it, both Macy and I have been trying to post like quotes from people we like. And I think it is in the spirit of no small thing in terms of trying to present a, a mood bo board of sorts as you scroll through our stories of a real diverse range of voices mm -hmm. and perspectives. Um, and so his is one that I intentionally put up there a lot. Um, and so uh, that's it. We got in sort of conversation with him. He would like it when we repost mm -hmm. it. Sometimes he reposts some of our stuff. When you eventually reached out. Yeah. No, I reached out. That's what I'm saying. Oh, oh, you, I thought you said he reached out. I said then you eventually you reached, reached out. out. I eventually reached out. <laughs> we can't hear. Um, okay. So this is just his bio from University of Virginia where he teaches. But obviously he, there's a lot more to him than this. But just so you know what you're getting a little bit into here tonight, um, Ashan Crawley is Associate Professor of Religious Studies in African-American and African Studies at the University of Virginia. He is author of Black Pentecostal Breath, The Aesthetics of Possibility, an Investigation of Aesthetics and Performance as Modes of Collective, Social Imagination. And he's also the author of The Lonely Letters, which is what we primarily, well, we talked about it on the podcast. Um, an Exploration of the Interrelation of Blackness blackness mysticism quantum mechanics and love to be published with duke which has now been published so you can get the lonely letters 
anywhere, I think. Most places. Oh. <laughs> Duke is having their annual spring sale until okay. May 1st. So if you buy buy it through Duke, uh, it's 50% off. Oh, see, this is the type of information yeah. you get when you have Reuven on. <laughs> you wouldn't know this. Um, yeah, I've been on Duke websites for a month <laughs> okay we we didn't we didn't actually know this or at least i didn't but he's currently working on a third book tentatively titled made instrument hmm. about the role of the hammond organ in the institutional historic black church in black sacred practice and in black social life more broadly all his work is about otherwise possibility mm. holy smokes everybody get ready to have your mind expanded yeah yeah i think we should get going into the interview so yeah. people can just start hearing him let me just say <laughs> this is kind of what i do when i play a song for macy Rubin, or matthew who are all in the house together now i try to over explain so i won't mm-hmm. over explain but i'll just say as you listen we 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 are still baby podcasters in a lot of ways and it tends to we, we tend to get start off awkward in an interview because we don't quite know where it's going to go and we want to be open. Ashawn wasn't awkward. I feel like I was extremely awkward. Maybe I'll just own that. Yeah, I don't think it's that awkward. No, I think but you're, I th- you're breathing I think awkwardness into and it. You've, you've, re- you've listened to it, so maybe I'm... Yeah, I, I maybe I just felt awkward because I, I was like, how do we enter the conversation? But I feel like maybe it was just this idea of like, since we hadn't talked to Ashawn before, as we kept talking, he became more familiar and we st- sort of found a rhythm. You guys can let us know if you think it's awkward or not. Let us know. I do. That's my personal. At the beginning, I felt awkward. <laughs> personally. Okay. I think Ruben's breathing. Okay. Okay, you guys. Here it is. Serendipity, serendipity. It's really. Oh, I'm recording now. So we are we are talking with Ashan Crawley, and um, everybody. We are zooming from all different parts of the country right now. I'm on Whidbey Island, and Macy and Reuven are in Seattle in my house, strangely, and (laughs) Ashan is in his house, I assume. Charlottesville, Virginia. Yeah, Charlottesville, Virginia. We got uh, mixed up on uh, the time difference. I didn't. I, I think I didn't communicate that we're on Pacific when, Standard. When time. you sent that message and said 7 p.m. our time, <laughs> at first I was like, okay. And then I said, wait, what? I don't know what time that is. <laughs> I've been actually Zooming with a lot of different people across the country. So yeah, um, I'm glad we cleared that up. <laughs> uh, I think everybody knows us, but I would love... Can you can you just describe exactly like what your um, like role at Duke is? Because you're a professor, right? I'm at um, University of Virginia. University of Virginia. Okay. Uh, so what do you teach there? I am in religious studies and African American studies. I um, am associate professor of religious studies and African American studies, and um, my work spans interdisciplinary. Um, 
non-disciplinary, transdisciplinary boundaries. And so I'm anywhere between religious studies, ritual and performance studies, gender and sexuality studies, African-American literature, African-American performance, African-American um, popular culture. And so I fit most of the things that I do under the rubric of performance studies because it gives me the most latitude to talk about uh, or the, it gives me the most sort of theoretical latitude to to talk about the the deep interdisciplinary nature of the work that I do. Um, and so it's within all those different areas. I don't... I. I don't know quite what I mean by this, but, and it's really funny not to be in the room. And I think these darn zoom calls, like I can't tell where anybody's looking. Like I can't know. I don't know <laughs> if anybody's looking at me. I'm sure you are. Cause I'm talking, but, um, I, I'm just thinking Macy, like to me, a Sean is, is for some reason, I just feel like the, the ultimate, no small thing interview. Like that's everything he said is like, that's what the, what I want to talk about. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> you know? I mean, half yeah. of it, I don't even quite know what he said, but all those things, I mean, just, the I don't either. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I do think it's kind of implying that there's even just in the, your, the studies that you're doing, like it's all connected to all these yeah. different layers and you can't kind of untie one discipline from another. Yeah. My first book, um, Black Pentecostal Breath is about the problem of disciplines um, and how I started off by talking about philosophy and theology and history as sort of three um, disciplinary boundaries within academia that are um, actually illusory. They don't exist. And I talk about them as like the reproduction of racial categories, which also don't actually exist. They're a part of the epistemology that says that they have to exist and so I, in my first book, argue strongly against the concept of categorical distinction um, because the categories that have been produced have been produced through racial logic, which is also violent logic. Um, and so the work that I try to do tries to honor the fact that what happens if you don't assume these boundaries exist? Um, and so one of the reasons why I focus on gender and sexuality so very much is because I think that... Um, the articulation of the boundaries of gender and sexuality have been one of the most primary and urgent and violent ways in which we have been categorized and how that um, product, how that fiction of categorization is itself a problem that we have to fight against um, because it, it interrupts our capacity for being in relation with one another. Um, and so I'm constantly thinking about the problem of categories and the problems of the sort of ideas that we can be pure and coherent and stable and trying to figure out ways in my work and my writing and my art practice to sort of work against those um, categories and the ways that they have been produced and the ways that they are maintained through violence. So, yeah. It's, it's so good. It's so good because I don't have to ask a ton of questions. It's just like, uh, Sean, I, I, I like... You're saying I talk too much. No, no, no. I, that's exactly what you want in an interview. That's exactly what you want in an interview. Uh, um, I was thinking like one of the reasons I wanted Reuven to be here with us is because a lot of the things you talk about and the way you talk about it is almost like from a different world sometimes. Like I, I only know about Fred Moten. Is It's is Fred Moten, right? Um, yes. because of Reuven and that, then that he came up in, in the opening of the lonely letters. And, um, now I can now, now when somebody brings up Fred Moten, I can be like, Oh yeah, I know who that is. Although I still haven't read any of his books, but, um, you should. You yeah, should. I know. I definitely well. plan on it. Um, but Reuven, I mean, just, I mean, we're all sort of 
slightly just getting to know each other a little bit. Can you just also describe what you study, or Reuven, at UW? Sure. Uh, so I'm I'm a third year student. So I'm in the process of still making my lists, mm-hmm. which is just uh, it's. I think it's it's kind of uh, like three lists. No one really knows what they're supposed to do. <laughs> <laughs> it don't matter at the end that there are three. <laughs> so it's one of those things uh, that's kind of like really like uh, jumping the hoop. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, but I do. Um, I do kind of like an intersection of although my training is in uh, in literary studies. Uh, mm-hmm. I do like an, an intersection of of sound studies and uh, gender, race, and sexuality, queer theory somewhere. But my kind of my folk, the maybe like the biggest focus for me is in intergenerational relationships. Uh, so I don't have like a work yet, <laughs> but I think like the most, uh, the most distinct form that I've been able to articulate when I'm studying is in the MA thesis that I wrote uh, where I talk about the role kind of like the singing mother in Fanon's uh, black skin, white masks and <laughs> tying it with my own um, kind of uh, experience of, because I was born in Indonesia and that's where uh, all my family lives. I'm here for school. And my mom, uh, she teaches English as a second language. So kind of like this relationship between kind of language acquisition and kind of I don't know, like the circuits of empire and colonialism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, so that's kind of like, <laughs> that's all I can tell you for now. <laughs> well, um, you should, not you should. I've <laughs> written about language um, specifically. I In my first book, the last book, actually the title, the chapters in the long letters are actually the same chapter designations that are in um in Black Pentecostal Breath, because I'm a weirdo. Um, <laughs> and because the categorical distinction between the first book and the second book doesn't actually exist, and so they are porous and um, interact. Anyway, the last chapter <laughs> of Black Pentecostal Breath is titled Tongues. And one of the things I talk about is um, the the difference between glossolalia, Black Pentecostals um, who believe in speaking in tongues as a practice, the difference between glossolalia and xenolalia, so speaking the language, a heavenly language, which um, there is no sort of use value beyond it being spoken within the service of the congregation. Um, that's what glossolalia is and xenolalia, which is the idea that you can speak the language of another without having to think in the in the sort of language of the people that you're speaking. And so during the early, early 20th century, when people began to speak in tongues in Los Angeles, a lot of them thought of them a lot of them thought about speaking in tongues as Zimalalia. So I'm speaking Hindi or I'm speaking um, Indonesia or I'm speaking um, Chinese or I'm speaking Spanish, even though I don't actually speak it and I don't have to think in it. And I really um, trouble that idea because I think it's deeply a um, um, settler colonialist concept for language and speaking. And so I think there, you might find some resonance between the way that I talk about speaking in that chapter and the way that you are trying to think about language and Fanon and the singing of the mother and even your mother as teaching English as a second language. So, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I have uh, I ordered the lonely letters already. <laughs> so I have it open on my iBooks, but I also ordered a physical copy, so I'll get that eventually. Um, I hope so. Yeah, um, <laughs> Ashan. Oh, do you have a question? Yeah, yeah. Please, Reven. Uh, I think, uh, at least for me, and I'm kind of like I and I've read the introduction to the lonely letters, and kind of. Uh, also, I think knowing like the people that you are citing, like um, Fred Moden and, and Nathaniel Mackey, uh, I know both of them have thought of uh, sound and language as kind of like interrelated but different. Uh, and I think when I sometimes when I kind of like uh, tell people like, oh, like study language, people think I'm studying linguistics. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh, but sound is not and and you know like the inter, especially the interventions that uh, Moden makes in in the break about sound being not reducible to linguistics. Uh, can you explain a little bit where you kind of like see that playing out, in kind of like your engagement with 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 music, with kind of like a Pentecostal culture? Um, sure. Um, I talk about sound as not reducible to music at all. Um, I have a chapter in both of the books titled Noise um, because I think that the history of Western epistemologies and the way it um, racializes and also produces categorical distinction also produces a category of noise as a racial um, concept um, so that the people who we are not supposed to listen to or the people who we think of as fundamentally non-human are also then the ones who make noise. And so for me, I'm always thinking about this, um, the way sound can announce modes of existence, modes of relationality that can't be reducible to the things we call language or the things we call music. Um, Nathaniel Mackey, in um, his book, Bedouin Hornbook, which is now part of the entire volume from a broken bottle, traces of perfume still emanate, has a um, statement. Um, one of the, the person in who's writing the letters talks about words don't go there. Um, he's talking about words having, lacking the capacity to go to where the kind of affective um, emotional register is pointing. Words lack the capacity to fully name the thing or grasp the thing that emotion or pathos is actually sort of longing for or desiring or reaching toward. Um, and I remember talking to Fred one day and he said, words don't go there, but words come from there. Right. And mm-hmm. so for me, it's that words don't go there, but language comes from there. Music comes from there. Sound comes from there. And it's the question of what is the thing that is there that I'm trying to figure out in my work, which is why I do. Um, in addition to all those other things I said I do in the beginning, I do sound studies, too. Um, I'm teaching a course now called um, Religion and the Power of Sound, um, because I think that sound is really productive for thinking about modes of relation, specifically in a world that is ocular-centric and thinks that knowledge is produced by our capacity to see things. Um, And so for me, what I'm constantly trying to figure out is what is the thing that allows for words to emerge? What is the thing that allows for song to emerge? What is the thing that allows for noise to emerge? Um, Because all of those, because those things are all emanating from the same kind of practice of generative sort of relationality and that vibration is the thing that makes these things possible. And so trying to think about the, um, 
trying to think the specificity of the thing as it emerges from that place is the thing that I'm trying to do in my work. Do you have a follow-up comment, Ruben? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. I mean, I've, uh, I think I've, I've been super interested in sound for kind of like talking about kind of like disciplinary boundaries and thinking about what, because I think this is true in, in academia, at least in my experience, it's often we ask for kind of like guarantees from like the objects that we study. So, and we kind of like, oh, I have to find like the most, I don't know, edgy, radical objects. Yeah. And those definitions of like ra- radical and edgy are kind of like, are really hierarchical. Uh, yeah. And kind of sometimes... So, and what I really, what drew me first to sound studies is first of all, I was like thinking about like those, because uh, uh, growing up, like I would like, you know, like my mom would be my teacher, I would like help my mom. And uh, one of the things that I was always kind of like, when I first came to the United States and I started uh, in 2013 and I started studying literature and I came back for like the summer and people were kind of like telling me, oh, like you're like, like, you know, transcending your mom and like superseding your mom. And I'm like, something about that just didn't sit well with me because I'm like, but, but, but my mom got erased in that kind of like, Uh sort of like quasi immigrant narrative of like the generation afterwards always having kind of like, you know, transcending the generation before. Yeah. You know, what I really like was like, you know, like, I could think about like the sounds that I grew up with and mm-hmm. my mom, uh, we still do this now. We, uh, she, do, she holds her kind of classes, um, at our house. So I like to, I joke to her that, you know, the reason why I'm never good at any of the musical instruments because I would never practice because there would be like 40 people in our house <laughs> overhearing me practice. Uh, so I could think about those things and I'm like, these are worth thinking with. These are yeah. worth, thinking about. uh, in, in, and that's sound studies happens to be the discipline that kind of allows me to do that. Mm-hmm. That's my follow up question. Go. <laughs> um, okay. So I'm just going to say, I feel like this is all just, we're not like uh, professional uh, NBC interviewers or something like that. I'm always like, how do we get started with the interview? Um, so this is like a nice little warm up, but I think we should just get right into the lonely letters just okay. as a way to, do you want to just describe sort of the, the impetus for wanting to write this, Sean, and, and <laughs> I didn't want to write it, <laughs> or or what 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 did get it going in you? Uh, and I mean, we've read the intro, but you might as well just describe it yourself. Um, um, you know, I 2010, I met someone that I thought was um, someone that I wanted to engage in a relationship with, and we met in the place where they live. I will not name that. Mm-hmm. And um, we went out and we had a good time. And I began to write this person emails, very short emails, just to check in. How are you doing? We didn't live in the same location. And so wanted to check in. How are you doing? What's going on? Um, and that person ghosted, which <laughs> I didn't even have the language for ghosting in 2010 like I do now. Um, but that person ghosted from the conversation and I was deeply disappointed and I had a lot to say. And I remember driving out to a mountain one day and 
going for a long hike and writing an email that I was going to send to this person. But I said, well, me and this person don't really know each other that well. And we haven't talked in a little while, but I still have this thing that I want to say. And so my friend, um, who I thank and acknowledge much, Desiree Thompson, um, encouraged me to write the thing that I felt like I wanted to say to someone else, but just send it to myself. And so I began to write an email that I never sent to the person, but I sent to myself. And the next day, I felt like I had more that I wanted to say. And so I wrote another email um, from a person named A to a person named Moth. And one of the reasons why I use the word Moth is because Moth is one of the words that is used um, in Nathaniel Mackey's work. And I like the idea of moths because they are delicate creatures that you have to grasp with a certain kind of delicacy or you will destroy it quickly. And so trying to figure out the proper method through which to grasp and reach for something with gentleness and tenderness while also reaching for that thing was the reason why the, um, the name moth stuck. Hmm. Um, and by the third email that I had written to myself, I've at that time figured out, well, this isn't about that person at all because you don't know that person. Um, you just have some stuff that you want to really say, that you want to work out, that you want to talk about. At that time, it was mostly about sort of religion and being queer and being excluded from sort of religious community that has been really deeply formative. And so they were really, really experimental letters talking a lot about dreams. Um, and I would just post them on Facebook and people respond like, oh, this is nice. And then some people wouldn't, most people didn't respond, of course, obviously. <laughs> um, and I just began to sort of collect all these letters that I had sort of brewing in my head where these ideas I wanted to work out. And that was in 2010 until 2011. Um, I began writing my dissertation. I was in grad school at the time. Began writing my dissertation in 2011. And... I want to say, I can't remember which chapter it was, but one of the chapters, I stopped writing these letters um, because I started writing the dissertation. And one of the chapters in the dissertation, I wanted to say something. And I said to myself, the thing that I'm trying to say, I've already written, it's in this letter. Mm -hmm. And so I took one of the letters from that. It was kind of a project, but not really. Um, and I took that one letter and I put it in the dissertation and just kind of snuck it in to see if anyone on the committee would say anything about it. And no one said, take it out. And so I said, okay, it must be okay. <laughs> um, I graduated in 2013 um, and I moved to California, taught at UC Riverside for three years, worked on the dissertation um, revision so that it could be transformed into my first book, Black Pentecostal Breath. And as I was working on the revisions, there were things that I wanted to say in the chapters that were similar to what I said when I was doing the dissertation. I feel like I said it better in this letter. And so the book has four of the letters instead of one that the dissertation did. Hmm. But at that point, I just was including the letters because I didn't, I honestly was kind of not being lazy, but I said, this says it in the register that I think 
is more precise than the register of trying to theorize it properly according to academic rubrics. And so I included the letters and I just waited to see what the reviewers would say. And the reviewers were excited about the letters and didn't tell me to take them out. And so I was pleased, but still I was not planning on transforming it into a, pub, into a project that would get published. And so the first book came out October of 2016. The first book talk that I gave, I didn't want to give a book talk because I said, you can just read the book because it already <laughs> exists. Why am I going to read from the book? And so what I did was kind of being lazy. I took one of the letters that I was writing and I began writing about quantum physics as well. And so I combined one of those old letters from the sort of not project and combined it with some stuff that I was writing about quantum physics. And I presented that as the first book talk. A couple of months later, I did a talk at an art gallery and I decided to transform the entire thing into a bunch of letters and presented it and it was very encouraged. I did it for my job talk for UVA and which was very, very um, experimental. Um, <laughs> some people said it was very risky, which it probably was um, because, you know, it's, you're presenting things that are not um, sort of um, um, academic according to orthodoxy of what it means to be an academic, but I still did it as a job talk. Um, it wasn't until the end of that month, which was December of 2016, when a friend's book, when a friend's mother read the book and she said to me, those letters, you should do something more with those letters. And it was like all of those different factors, the reading of these newer letters with the older letters um, for these public talks and this person saying, oh, you should do something with these letters that encouraged me to really try to think about it as perhaps its own standalone project. And so I began to revisit all of the letters that I'd begin writing in 2010, the letters that I'd written in 2011. And so throughout the years, I would write like small snippets. I still have some in my drafts still, where I would write like a sentence or two that was going to turn into a letter. And so each year, regardless, if I had something that I wanted to say, I would just write a small note in my um, email drafts and I would send it to myself just in case I wanted to revisit it. And so I had all of these notes, all of these drafts, and I had this like 200 page single space document where I had always, where I had all these other letters. And so the letter, um, the lonely letters really came from really intentionally deciding to collect the things that I had been working on and to include some newer ideas that I wanted to really think through and think about. And so in 2017 is really when I began to sit down and say, let's take this really, really seriously. And so I revised a bunch of the letters. I got rid of a bunch of the letters. Um, I went into, into my drafts and found the letters that I felt should be sort of extended and thought through. Um, I also started painting in 2017, which became a part of the project. I'd written a letter in 2011 based on imagining a painting practice, but I didn't do the painting practice until 2017. And 21 of the paintings are included in the book, um, which was not anticipated. Um, and so the, the project really emerged from sitting still and um, waiting and constantly being heartbroken over like trying to make connections with people and those connections being sort of forestalled. 
I said to a friend uh, earlier this week that um, reading the letters, um, I read a couple of the letters last Saturday and reading those letters felt like I was writing to my current self without having knowledge of what the current state of my life would be. I was writing specifically to this very, 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 very specific moment. And it's weird because in the book, I talk a lot about quantum entanglement and I talk about time not being linear. And I talk about the future and the past as being like, the future is the thing that affects your past moment. And (laughs) it's just weird to kind of experience that in a kind of very material way, in a non sort of abstract way, but to say, no, what you wrote then you could not have anticipated because that certainly wasn't about something that you had experienced, but it's something that you're experiencing 10 years later. Um, And so in some ways I feel like the book called me to write it. Um, The letters called me towards writing it and it wasn't my sort of volition or will that said, I need to sit down and write these things as much as it was these things need to be said and you are going to be the vessel through which it is said. I hope that answered the question. That was very long. <laughs> that didn't answer the question, Ashon. <laughs> you, you need to say more. <laughs> no, uh, one of the things that I'm thinking about as you talk, because uh, obviously I think this is so profound because it's um, so personal, you know, like uh, it's, it feels very intimate reading it, you know, and um I, I was I was gonna I, I we we probably won't have time for this but I was gonna bring up this thing you wrote about Kanye last year and one of the critiques is uh is that um he's uh it, like improvisational without the training so to speak like and uh, it seems like it that that concept reminds me of of your writing in the sense that like you're very obviously trained and you've put a lot of work and time and practice into your writing but then you're letting yourself improvise a little bit more, even in the context of like academia and stuff like that, yeah. um, which feels fun and playful, I bet, for you. Well, you know, I feel like <laughs> I said to a friend a couple of weeks ago, I'm a failed academic and she um, did not agree with me. And what I mean when I say that is that I don't, you know, I'm from working class, um, Black East Orange, New Jersey, K through 12, public school baby. Love it. Loved everything about it. Um, public schools where the teachers lived in the neighborhood and the principals lived in the neighborhood. You knew everybody and they knew your siblings and they knew your parents. And it was close knit, but it was also like very much working class. And, um, you know, my mother went to college. My father didn't go to college. I'm the first PhD in my immediate family. And so, I didn't, I didn't and still do not know a lot of the rules uh, by which people are supposed to sort of abide, um, the standards by which we are supposed to operate. Um, my undergraduate degree is in environmental studies. I was in the engineering program for three years, got kicked out um, because my grades were terrible, um, got um, dismissed from the role of the university and had to petition to re-enroll um, at the university And I petitioned and they let me back in the same year that I was kicked out, which was surprising to everyone, including my advisors, because they said they never re-enroll someone the same time that they kicked them out. But I told them, I can't go home. Um, I cannot, 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 cannot go home. Um, And I had to come up with like this plan for um, 
for graduating. And so I said, I would take architecture courses and I would take photography courses and I would take courses in urban education. And those were the urban education courses are the first courses where I had to actually write. Um, but I didn't take an English course. This is a long pivot to say I didn't take an English course. Um, I took, at that time, it was a new platform, Blackboard, which is not new anymore. But at that time, it was like the first year that Blackboard was being used, my senior year, or my fifth year, I should say. And I was using, we did a year-long sort of online class where we never met in person. We would read like newspaper things and then we would respond to like whatever the essay prompt was. I went to seminary. I, I graduated in 2003. I went to seminary in 2005. And I thought I would get a degree in religious studies um, after seminary. I wanted to do a PhD in religious studies or theology. Um, and my second year of seminary, when I applied, I got rejected from every program I applied to. Mm. Um, I applied to eight and got rejected to all of them, which was deeply disappointing because I had to move back home sleep on my twin size bed, which is something I hadn't done since I was 18, and moved back home, reapplied to grad programs, ended up applying to English grad programs in addition to religious studies. And I got into Duke English and I went to Duke English and I had not taken an English class proper since high school. Hmm. Um, and I was 28 years old at this point. And so it's 10 years between like high school and now, or in, in that moment, and so I hadn't taken an English course proper. And instead of leading that to anxiety, I let that, I let that be an opportunity to say, I don't know what I'm doing. And so I'm just gonna learn as much as possible. Um, I hadn't read Twain. I hadn't, any of the people that you're supposed to read mm. in the great American novel tradition, I hadn't read. <laughs> and instead of having anxiety about that, I just said, okay, I have, I have work to do. Um, and I didn't know what a tenure track job was. Um, honestly, I went to school because I wanted to read and I wanted to write and I knew I wanted to teach, but I didn't know what like the hierarchy of like academia meant. And so, so much of the way that I inhabit academia is through not like um, happy or sort of um, blissful ignorance. It's through not recognizing that there are um, there is a hierarchy that you are supposed, and like there is a set of rules and rubrics by which you are supposed to abide. But because I'm not a part of the, I haven't been indoctrinated in a certain kind of way, even in undergrad, um, my ability to move has been because I feel like, oh, I just want to do this thing. So I'm just going to do this thing. And then I can let people tell me after, well, you know, that's not what we actually do. But then by that point, I've already done the thing. And so for me, it doesn't matter. Um, and so I've been very, um, I've been very fortunate to be able to do the kinds of work that I am able to do, the kinds of research that I'm able to engage and to honor the people that I'm able to honor because I've worked with people that have encouraged me to really think more broadly and capaciously about what's possible from the space of academia. Fred Moten was my dissertation advisor and is my friend. Um, really, really encouraged me to think more broadly about the kinds of person or the kind of person I wanted to be in the world as opposed to the kind of academic I wanted to be for academia or for the institution. And that still animates the way that I think about the work that I'm able to do. 
And so, you know, I think of myself as a failed academic insofar as I'm not trying to live up to the institution and what it desires, but I'm really trying to think along with other people about how we can produce a more just and equitable and kind and loving and caring world. Um, that's more important to me than the institution. So I could do... You mentioned job talk. I went to my first, well, I was not applying but for a job, but we were hire, trying to hire, uh, we had an open faculty position for Asian American studies and uh, RETCOM. And I went to like my first job talk. It was brutal. <laughs> <laughs> job talks can be, mm, they can be, yeah, they can be unkind. And, yeah. you know, I just, I've been fortunate enough that only one job talk that I ever had that I've been like, oh, this is bullshit. Like, cause it was kind of clear that they, they didn't, they didn't read the stuff that I had sent in, not with a kind of attention and they were just kind of mean, but for the most, for the most part, I've been lucky because the people that I've been able to engage, even if I didn't get the position were like nice people. And, you know, you just come to recognize real, really quickly that, the ways people respond to job talks almost has nothing to do with the candidate. It's about like people trying to like, it's about the colleagues who are trying to shoot other people down to make sure the person that they want to get the job gets the job. Oh, that's, that does sound it's brutal. So much like, ugh, it's, it's, mm. Well, I was wondering if you would want to speak a little bit more to what it's like been adding the practice of doing visual art, because I would say that your visual art, like, I think it's so beautiful. The the one with the three circles and the like black paint that you use your feet print, I think probably. I mean, I I could look at that for like hours. So I've just been wondering like, what has that meant for you adding that practice and how have you added that practice in? And yeah. Thank you. So in the book, I try to describe it a little bit in 2011. So the same person who told me to write emails to myself, which is why she has a full in the acknowledgments, um, Desiree, who told me to write uh, myself emails, is also the same person who sent me in 2011 a video of, she was at that time, three-year-old girl, who's abstract painter. Um, and it's just like two seconds in the video um, where she has blue paint on her hair and in her hands, it's everywhere. And she crouches over the canvas and begins to clap over the canvas. And in 2011, when I saw that, one of the letters I wrote was a fictionalized version of this person named A, writing to this person named Moth, and saying, I listen to Pentecostal music with paint on my hands, and I clap to the rhythm of the Pentecostal praise music, or I dance on canvas with mm. to the rhythm of Pentecostal music while people are shouting, or what we call dancing or praising in churches with paint on my hands and paint on my feet and I let the paint splatter. That was 2011. When I moved to Virginia in 2017 and I had a lot of space and time, I just, and once I began to revisit the letters, um, so early 2017 is when I began to like really revise the letters and really reach out to people about the possibility of it being a project. When I moved to Virginia um, and I had space um, I began to buy paint and I decided to see what would happen if I tried to do the thing that I said in, the, in that one letter that I'd written. 
And so I began the process. I would listen to like, I would go to YouTube and find church services where people were praising and I would listen to the music with paint on my hands and I would mm-hmm. clap to the rhythm and let the paint splatter. And the painting that you're talking about is a part of the series called Dancing in One Spot, where I listen to Pentecostal sort of shouting or praising, and I dance on the canvas or dance on the paper with pigment powder um, and let the pigment powder sort of dig into the surface as much as possible, which is really hard, actually. Um, And so those paintings... The painting process and the artist, the the movement into a visual arts practice um, is not just visual. It's a it's an audio visual or um, the word that I use in the first book is choreosonic. So choreography and sonicity mm-hmm. is a choreosonic practice insofar as it's trying to honor the refused distinction between movement and sound. Um, and so the painting or the the arts practice that I have been engaging is a way for me to honor um, the, the Black Pentecostal worlds that made me sensitive to the way sound um, and noise moves people, mm. the way sound and noise can be a mode to think about relationship, the way sound and noise can be a way to think about queerness, while at the same time not having to go to churches that are homophobic and transphobic and sexist and classist. And so on the one hand, what my art practice is the attempt to do is to honor the life worlds that made me possible while also engaging in a deep critique of the life worlds that made me possible because those life worlds are also now practicing exclusion of me. And I've also been engaging in um, augmented reality Um, trying to do some work with augmented reality and also doing work in sound, um, sound art as well. Um, And so all of these ways, all of these different ways or all of these different methods and all of these different forum fora are ways for me to approach something like performing the concepts that are um, really germane to the, the first book and now the Lonely Letters, which is that there is a mode of existence that is deeply capacious and imaginative and that black queerness is a mode of relation that allows for these methods to be most pronounced and that what we do when we exclude black queer folks is we relinquish our capacity for being in relation to one another in various modes and various ways and it's always a practice of violence and so that's the thing that i'm trying to think through with the different arts practices Have you have you heard of uh, Padre Gotuma, Ashan? I have not. No. Okay, um, he's a um, 
Irish poet about I'm 30, I'm 40, I'm 40. You're 39. Yes. He's about our age. I interviewed him in Ireland and he essentially had a similar experience to you. I'm assuming in, um, the Irish Catholic church growing up queer. And, uh, we had, we had a really interesting conversation about that, but I'd wonder if you'd be interested or willing to talk a little bit about what it was like, or has been like engaging with the black Pentecostal church as a queer person. Well, you know, that's a not easy question. Um, not easy, <laughs> but it it shows up in the lonely letters a lot. I mean, it seems like something that obviously has been extremely challenging for you because you're still. It seems like you're still trying to con- maintain that familial connection. Yeah, um, but in the service of critique, right, and in the service of believing. Um, that the community can um, practice more generosity and charity and um, care with the folks that it has excluded. Um, So I I was saying to some folks yesterday that each of the letters that are written about the interpersonal relationship between Moth and A and like their on again, off again, sexual relationship is a mess. But um, you can read each of those letters about their interpersonal relationship is also a letter about the church specifically. And um, it is because the same affect, the same um, feelings of confusion and the feelings of um, brokenheartedness that emerge from a feeling like the connection with, with Moth cannot be maintained for a variety of different reasons. And as you'll read it, you'll figure out, or you'll hear more about what those reasons are, that those same feelings of being brokenhearted after having moments of elation and joy is the same thing that A experiences and that I have experienced in terms of my relation with the Black Pentecostal Church. And so far as it's a community that taught me what love is. It's a community that taught me what joy is. It's a community that gave me a sense perception for listening and sound or sound or listening and smelling and tasting and touching that it gave me and seeing, it gave me a deep sense perception for the sensual world. And there is a lot of elation there, but after having been excluded for doctrine and theology, there is deep brokenheartedness there. And so growing up, Um, I recognized that there was something different about me that I did not want to be different about me and wanted as much as possible to live um, a holy and sanctified life according to the doctrines and theologies of the church at the time, which was queerness is sinful. And so I tried and prayed and cried a whole lot that I would be as straight as possible. Um, And that never happened. (laughs) I remember I tell people, or maybe this will be the first time I tell this story publicly, but um, Black Friday 2000, no, Black Friday 1999, I went on a date with someone and they went to a different university than I did in New Jersey. And we both met up, I think through AOL or something like that, a chat room. And we went out, he and I, we went to a diner, we went to a park, it was great. We talked and we both talked about how we grew up in these very religious households and how we were both trying to get the gay out of our system so that you know, by the time we're 25 or 26, we can be straight and get married and have children and for me, be a pastor of a church. 
And the next year, Black Friday, 2000, we went out again because I'm sure I sent him a message and said, well, I'm home again. Um, do you want to go out again? And we went out again. And I said, I'm sure something about getting the gay out of my system in the same way that I said the year before. And his response was, oh, you still think it's sinful to be gay? Mm-hmm. And it was the first time that someone had produced queerness as a question and not as a settled concept religiously. And it really, really fucked with, oh, can I curse you? I'm sorry. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> it really, really messed with me <laughs> because I was not prepared for that. Um, I was prepared very much for, you know, just trying to get it out, just trying to get it out so I can be straight. And it was the first occasion that I had to really, at least once the person, once the question is asked, you can't unask it. Right. And so for me, um, it interrupted who I thought that I could be because it made things that I thought were settled concepts, a question, even though it was a very simple question. Um, And so that's when I began to ask the question, like, oh, wait, there are people that don't think it's sinful. I just thought, you know, people had accepted that they were sinning. I didn't think that there were people who didn't think it was sinful because how could you not think it's sinful? It's, everyone knows it's sinful. And so it led me down a path of deep, deep questioning. Um, another incident um, that I've been thinking about a lot recently is when um, I was taking a course that was titled Minorities in the Media, and they wouldn't title it that now, thankfully. But in, you know, I think it was like 2001, 2002, it was titled Minorities in the Media. And the first section we read um, a lot of bell hooks, and it was about Black representation in media. And I said, yes, this is really messed up. Look at how they treat Black folks in the media. The second section was about Latinx representation in media. And I said, yes, look at how they treat Latinx people in the media. This is really fucked up. The third section was about Asian and Asian American representation in media. And I said, look at the consistency with which they treat Black folks and Latin American people and Asian American people. Look at the deep structural relationship. It's not the same, but there is a structure of inequity that seems to slot these people in similar kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. Except (laughs) the last section was on queer people, queer representation in the media. And I knew then... I knew, I said, if I want to have integrity, I have to say that the same structure of inequity that is existing for these other modes of identity exists for queer people. If I don't want to have integrity, I can say, well, the Bible still says it's sinful, so. Um, and because I wasn't willing to make the, the, the claim for integrity, but I also wasn't, I, I could not make the former claim, oh, well, the Bible says it's sinful. Um, I could not, I just, I think I just didn't do any of the responses for that section of the class because not only would it have been like an abstract concept, it would be um, me having to really wrestle with the kind of person that I could now imagine myself to be now that one, this person a couple of years previous asked this question, oh, you think it's sinful? And two, now that even at the level of like, um, at the level of like thought in terms of like secular thought, I'm making the connection because these other people are making the connection for me. And so growing up, 
the question, uh, it was never a question of is queerness like a sin, a, a sin. And now all of a sudden I'm being confronted with the possibility that not only is it not a sin, but maybe perhaps you need to think about what sin is itself. I don't believe in sin anymore. But like I had to really, really wrestle with the doctrines and theologies that made me possible because those doctrines and theologies were deeply harmful for to the very way to the way that I could even imagine possibility. Like it wouldn't allow for the doctrines and theologies wouldn't allow for sexuality to be a question. Um, yeah. the, the doctrines and theologies wouldn't allow for sexuality to be a kind of mode of being marginalized that you could make connections between racialization, gender, and sexual orientation. And so what it was doing was my imagination was being exploded and my mode of cognition was being exploded. But that is like a really, 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 really scary thing. Mm -hmm. And so those are the things that I had to be confronted. And I didn't want to be a choir director when I was a kid because I knew all the choir directors who were dudes were gay. And I didn't know what that meant at the time. Um, and I think of it differently now, um, kind of, sort of, not really. I also don't describe myself. Um, I don't say that I identify as a queer person or I try not to. Um, I try to at least now say that I practice queerness, mm. which for me is more important I'm really tired of identity, like identity is getting on my nerves. And I really think it's more important to think about the modes through which we practice relation with one another. And so even the idea of practicing relation as opposed to the identity of something is something that could only be made possible through a different kind of epistemological shift that the doctrine and theologies of my youth, um, my childhood and youth did not make possible, didn't make even tenable. And so I'm, you know, that's how I grew up. And I'm still sort of thinking about, excuse me, I'm still thinking about those things and wrestling with those things. And, um, but still want to honor the Pentecostal life that, that also made me. Mm -hmm. You know, you do a fantastic job of that in your writing um, of just not only honoring, but um, drawing people into the traditions. I think um, I've been mostly in, Presbyterian church is my whole life, which is obviously a, a completely different energy than a black Pentecostal church. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's, I think it's really sweet the way you continue to think about the positive impact that it had on your life. Um, well, because it's also like, <clears throat> yeah, I think that a lot of the things that Pentecostal black Pentecostals do are not the prop, the private property of black Pentecostals mm. at all. Um, what I mean, like I talk about, um, I might talk about it in the long letters. This is a problem when you kind of have too much written everywhere. You don't know where things are. <laughs> I think I've written somewhere about, um, how like black performance in general reaches for the kind of energetic response that black Pentecostalism produces all black performance, regardless that whether it's in a jazz club or whether it's in a, like a comedy club, that the kind of spirit response that you want, the spiritedness that you want, even if it's a spiritedness of quiet or a spiritedness of so solemnity, that it's still, a, it's still in the same tradition as the spiritedness through which Black Pentecostals respond to spirit in churches, such that the kinds of energetic, exuberant, 
fleshly responses that you receive in Pentecostal churches are not themselves the property of Black Pentecostalism. They are, for me, an articulation of the practice of Black relationality. And so thinking about it as the practice of Black relationality makes it then um, easier for me to make the relation or to think about the relationship between, for example, Black um, Black Pentecostalism and Black Islam or Black Pentecostalism and Black comedy or Black dance and um, Black sorrow, like that refusing these things as private property is on the way to thinking about the generativity of the ways we can notice these practices emerging in several kinds of ways. And I think that what Black Pentecostalism does is it cultivates a certain kind of relationship to the concept of the notion of the spiritual, but it still isn't the private property of it. And I think it also really, really cultivates Black queerness in ways that other traditions and other modes of performance do not cultivate Black queerness. Mm. And um, I think that that cultivation of Black queerness, even through its dismissal of Black queerness, is something at least to notice, pay attention to, and to begin to honor insofar as what you want to do is to create a world where there is no marginalization of Black queer practice. And the one, one of the ways that I began to critique sort of the explicit homophobia and transphobia is to say, well, look at how you have created this Black queer world that Black queerness inhabits, that it is practiced with density and deep joy here. Um, and so that's kind of what I'm trying to do too. That's so good. I just want to just echo just like, <laughs> like everything. I mean, everything from kind of the, the kind of uh, not seeing queerness as an identity. I think we've kind of like have had a lot of like arguments, heated and non arguments about kind of like, like, what does it mean? Like is really what you want just to be able to get married? Like, is that what queerness is? But I think in a kind of like the kind of like, progressive narrative that I think gets uh gets kind of like equated with with the even the idea of like coming out or queerness yeah yeah but kind of like the idea that oh like you know you America is you know the land of like the free queers with like their rights or something and that everything else like is just like this backward societies that need to catch up but they but what that kind of like eliminates is like the relationalities that these things kind of like, you don't want to leave them. Yeah. They kind of like formed you. They've taught you so many things. Mm -hmm. Dang. And you want to honor them. And, but what you want is like a world where you can take the thing with you that you cultivated in having been excluded while also eliminating the practices of exclusion because there's something very generative, not in the practice of being excluded, no, but there is something very generative about the creative capacity to make things having been excluded. Hmm. Like that's the, I keep saying to my students, like what we have to do, like it's kind of like how care or love or joy um, are deeply gendered and we think of those as like things that weak people do or things that um, non-cis men do um, because of weakness. But that's like a patriarchal understanding of love, care, and joy, right? 
And for me, I'm like, well, yeah, in order to assert your personhood, you shouldn't have to relinquish your capacity for care. What you should do is cultivate, we have to cultivate a world of care. And also we have to eliminate then the structure of inequity that thinks that care is itself the thing that we have to relinquish in order to be a good citizen, a good man, a good sort of subject of the state that the we have to on the, we have to do these things at the same time cultivate the practice that is marginalized while also ending the kind of structure of inequity that produced the occasion for this practice to be marginalized in the first place and that's like the that's the tension that we have to hold on to and i and i see so many people thinking well i'm going to just i'm going to give up care because white men don't care and i'm like well <laughs> why is that the model? Like, why is white supremacy the model by which you want to understand and aspire toward a, con- a concept of personhood, as opposed to the kinds of personhood that has been created by being excluded from that concept, which is fundamentally vi- a violent concept? Like, can we practice the thing that we practice and also let go of the anxiety of becoming that thing while at the same time creating a world where that thing is also eliminated. Those are the things that we have to do. And that's why it's so hard. Ashan, I know you wanted to be a preacher at one point. I, I feel like these are like l- great little mini sermons you're giving. Cause I want to like stand <laughs> up and clap. <laughs> I, I mean, I, pre- I preached a very, very little bit. I mean, I was, as a young person, I was being trained to be a preacher. My father is a pastor. My mother's a preacher. My brother was um, a preacher. Um, I was a um, musician for the church and a choir director eventually. And I also was like playing at preaching. And I preached my sort of first sermon at my parents' church. And then, you know, I went to seminary. And the last sermon that I preached was at Metro State Women's Prison. Um, Mm. And mostly because um, I had no language for prison abolition at the time, but I knew that pris- that there was something terrible about incarceration that um, that we had to end. Um, and I felt deeply unsettled by how the our like we got a grade um, the students that went into the chip um, the prison as like prison chapel chaplains. Uh, we went every week. And our job was to sort of lead the church service. And I felt it was really vulgar. Um, and so me being the asshole that I am, I preached a sermon. Um, last sermon I preached that was titled, um, You Are Beautiful. And as a good Pentecostal preacher, you tell your you know people in the audience to turn to their neighbor and to tell their neighbor whatever you want to tell them. <laughs> and I told them to turn to their neighbor and say, you are beautiful. And it's like, well, why would you tell them to do that? Because one of the things I found out immediately was that people went to chapel not because they were religious. People went to chapel not because they were saved, so-called, or born again. People went to chapel because a lot of times that was the time where you could sit with your friends or you could sit with your partner. Like, you could sit anywhere you wanted to sit in chapel. And so for me, I was like, oh, well, I'm going to use this opportunity to affirm the people who are incarcerated, but also to have them affirm each other in their deep relationships that they have with each other in this space that is sacred because their love for each other is sacred. And so for me, it felt very important to do that kind of disruptive work. Um, But after that, I felt like 
being committed to being a preacher is just a thing that I could not do anymore um, because it felt inefficacious for the kinds of change that I think are necessary. It felt inefficacious for the change that I think is um, urgent and needed. Other people do that work and I think they do a great job of it. I just felt like for me, um, it wasn't doing the kind of work that I thought that needed to be done and especially not in a prison. Um, I think being a chaplain at a prison is the thing that turned me off to clergy more than anything else. Mm, mm. One of the many, many, many reasons I wanted to have Ashan on the podcast was just in our small little way, like being like exposing our audience to his work. And so I think we can do that a lot in the intro, but I would be sad if we didn't like engage with a little bit of the lonely letters. So there's just one of my, I just was like highlighting some of my favorite sections. I, I do not, I do hate that I don't have the physical book with me because I like a physical book, but um, this is from the dreams section. So okay. I, I thought it'd be interesting if I read it and then you could just riff on dreams a little bit because obviously you talk about dreams a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Um, dreams are curious objects of memory and mourning of bright, colorful joys and intense modulations of sadness and melancholy. You are left wanting, left wishing, left wondering. Dreams produce and contain and hallucinate both elation and ecstasy. Elation shared, flowing through the tender sweetness of air and breath and wind. Joys like rivers, the comforter has has come. Mm -hmm. Dreams. Dreams also produce and contain and hallucinate grief. Grief that is too much to carry alone. Like lying in bed, slightly damp or perhaps even drenched because of tossing and turning. Confused mind jumping from thought to idea to brief smile to despair to fleeting pleasure to heartbreak. All this and a numbing hope echoing the slight nothingness and almost emptiness of the image of desired stillness. A hope that rest and peace will soon come. Dreams. Dream worlds are amplifications of possibility. So good. Yeah. Um, Why did you want to talk about dreams so much? I because dreams are where things happen. Um, Agreed. <laughs> dreams are dreams are really complex, and when you are in the middle of them, um, you often don't know you are in the middle of um, a dream world, and. I wanted to talk about dreams because dreams are for me the place where otherwise possibility is realizable Um, because dreams allow for the unfettered um, flight of imagination and it is both conscious choice and unconscious decision the way that dreams happen. Why is this person in my dream? Why am I thinking about this thing? Why is this room next to this congregation? Um, These are things that dreams make possible, juxtapositions that don't seem real, um, but no less happen in the thing we call a dream. Um, I don't study dreams, so I'm just gonna say that I don't think we understand what dreams are in their fullness. (laughs) Um, we don't have a full sort of conceptualization for the reason why we have dreams. Um, We know what the brain does, but we we still don't know why it puts things together in the ways that it does. 
And so for me, dreams are these improvisational, these spaces of improvisational practice that can be really elating or they can be deeply depressing. Um, I think that letter, um, which is an adaptation of an essay that I wrote, begins by talking about how, I think it does, it might not, it might be another one. <laughs> um, but in January of 2016, um, I had a dream on a Saturday that a family member had died. And the only reason I remember that is because I woke up crying. And it was only the tears on my face that made me remember that I was dreaming and that led me back into what happened in the dream, which was someone died. Two, two days later, my grandmother, my paternal grandmother died. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. And it was... Um, eerie to me only insofar as we were not close at all. Um, You know, some people have really close relationships with their grandparents where they call them all the time and they're always at their house. And I called my my paternal grandmother once in my entire life to say hi as an adult. Um, And it felt like a, not an easy conversation. So all that to say, we weren't close at all. And yet my dream let me know that there was something that was going to happen, even though at the time that I had it, and even when I woke up from it, I didn't realize that it was sort of preparing me. But the dream was actually preparing me for the fact of the death of um, my grandmother. And so for me, I really began at that time to really think about dreams as perhaps the announcement of other worlds interrupting our current world or the thing that we think of as the normative world. Dreams as the capacity for queer possibility being realized in otherwise worlds, but also in this world. Mm -hmm. And so I talk about dreams a lot because dreams are the places where if we let ourselves, dreams are the places where things happen even if we have anxiety about it. And so, and dreams are the the places where things happen even if we are afraid of things. I don't like roller coasters. <laughs> um, I've only been on Space Mountain. I'm never getting on anything else. <laughs> but I have a dream about a roller coaster. And like it's not because I want to get on a roller coaster at all. It just it'll happen. And so dreams are these places where things happen, um, even if you have anxiety about it. And so the question is like, well, what are you gonna do? Like you can't control the dream. Or some people, you know, can control their dreams. I'm not good like that. Um, I'm not trained like that. (laughs) I allow for the sort of untrained, uncultivated practice of dreaming to be the thing that informs me, which is, it's just a thing that happens that, you know, it's possibly because of some things you were thinking about, but also it's about some past that you have not forgotten. It's about futures that you haven't, um, um, it's about futures that haven't happened yet such that for me, dreams are also not about linear time. They're about sort of um, different practices of temporality and relationality. And so for me, dreams are at least a space of opportunity to think about um, practices of being in the world with one another in ways that can perhaps produce um, something more generative, more joyful, um, more urgent than perhaps what our mundane quotidian lives um, seem to make possible. I love that. I I, I do think. Do you, do you want to say something, Macy? 
Well, I was just going to say, I, I love the point of the juxtaposition that dreams allow, allowing mm-hmm. these two things that you may consciously never think would come, come alongside one another, but then a dream happens and you can't help but now have to see them in relation to one another because the dream uh, like allowed that to happen. Yeah, um, I um, first began to think about the juxtaposition um, in dreams while reading the Fanny Mackey's Bedouin Horn book when he, there's this letter that is written from In to Angel of Dust where he talks about, In talks about his brother. Um, and he says that the weird thing about the dream was that he was in two places at one time, like in two rooms at one time. And it's like, well, this is impossible. And that's when I began to actually pay more attention to what was happening in dreams in terms of juxtaposition. Like, well, this church, this blue church um, interior doesn't belong with like the outside, but yet somehow they are both inhabiting the same space at the same time. And I don't even think it's about giving us a specific kind of meaning necessarily. And, but it could be about prompting our imagination to what is possible. Um, and so for me, it's the same thing that the question, oh, you still think it's sinful does, which is it prompted my imagination towards something else being possible. And I think that that's what dreams do. They prompt our imagination towards the capacity for something else maybe uh, maybe being possible. And that's what queerness does for me as relation. It prompts the imagination for what could possible, what else could be possible. And so that's why I think about um, dreams and specifically about juxtaposition in them. Um, one of my one of my most influential influential books I ever read was called The Prophetic Imagination by Brueggemann. And yeah. it seems like there's a lot of rich uh, spiritual stuff in, in the things you're saying just about dreams, just in terms of us imagining a better world, better, whatever, a different world. Um, yeah. And Christians aren't very good at that oftentimes when they should be <laughs> a lot better. Well, I tell people, I tell my students to watch cartoons. I watch, um, what's that? We're on the edge of greatness, bringing darkness to light. Um <laughs> Out of Grayskull. What is oh it? oh um, He Man He Man Shira oh, He Man Shira yeah. He Man on yeah. um I'm singing the, <laughs> I'm wording the yeah the lyrics to the intro I love the new Shira it's so good because it's about friendship mm-hmm. and I love um Steven Universe because it's about friendship <laughs> Steven Universe is like the best I love Avatar the Last Airbender because that's about friendship and it's about struggle and it's about never giving up on someone because you believe in their capacity for change. This is why Iroh is like the best character on television because he never gave up on his nephew because he's like, no, I see what you can do. I know what you can be. And I know you're frustrated, but you can do it. Like I tell people that I watch cartoons and I watch cartoons that are primarily for children because they are mostly about imagination front, Mm. imagination fun, caring for one another, sharing with one another, and how to be a good citizen in relation with other people. Because those are the things that I think we need to learn more than anything else. Those are the practices that I think we need to cultivate more than anything else. And like Summer Camp Island, which is this cute little cartoon on Cartoon Network, which, I mean, the theme song has the entire show in it, but it's like... (laughs) Like, it's like this amazing show about Oscar and Hedgehog who are best friends, a boy and a girl who love each other deeply and take care of each other all the time. And it's like, yeah, this is this is how we should be. And so 
I think that what a lot of religious folks, um, Christian or other, should do is watch children's programming because children's programming is so um, emphatic about the need to be caring and sharing and to be joyful with one another mm-hmm. more than anything else. We love Iroh. Iroh's a great character. I, I love Iroh. it. I love it when he's in the jail and he starts like doing pull-ups and getting buff again. <laughs> it's really the funny. Tales of Bossing say yeah. is one of the best little five minutes of a television show I have ever seen. <laughs> and also Steven Universe um, mindful education is oh. one of the best episodes of television I have ever, mm-hmm. and I watch it all of the time to help me feel calm. Honestly, mm-hmm. take a moment. Take Did a you moment have you, to think of just? Have you seen the end of the future? I have not seen the end of the future. Oh. I'm trying to. I'm trying to hold it. I'm trying to hold. Oh, it. get ready. Get ready. I won't. We won't. We won't tell you anything. But man, it's recorded. It's recorded. I love it. Well, I've loved the episodes that I've seen, but I haven't finished yet. We've yeah. done three episodes on Steven Universe. We we love <laughs> oh, that wow. show. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, another 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 thing that's coming to mind that we're all fans of, and I don't know if you uh, are Aishan, but like uh, we l- love um, Twin Peaks, which is created I've by David. I've never Lewis. seen Twin Peaks. Uh, I, now, I what I would say is. Um, I don't think you need to watch the old show, which was from the nineties, but twin peaks, mm-hmm. the return just came back out on showtime and Reuben and I are like out of this world fans of twin peaks, the return, but David Lynch, when, uh, when he created it said it's, it's essentially just, uh, utilizing dream logic. So there, everybody's like, what were you trying to do? And what's the point? And what you didn't tie up all these loose ends. And he's just like, it's just meant to be this floating, these floating dream scenes. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you want to say anything about that, Ruben? <laughs> well, I feel like I, I do this thing where uh, I wake up and then I tell Macy or our other housemates about the dream I just had. I had a dream about meeting Jesse Norman yes, last night. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I asked her, can you teach me how to sing in German? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so good. Obviously, one of the things that we started doing was um, reposting a bunch of your, like, your pictures and quotes from your daily walks. Um, and I wonder if you'd be interested in saying a little bit like what those daily walks mean to you. Cause it seems like it a really like an important spiritual practice of sorts. Um, I began going to um, this place called Ivy Creek natural area here in Charlottesville for a two to three hour walk, just about five days a week <clears throat> because it gives me a time to zone out. It gives me time to not be in my house. Um, mostly empty, a lot of people don't go there. And so it has been really important because it connects me to beauty in a different kind of register. It connects me to the beauty of the earth. Um, It connects me to the beauty of the sound of brooks um, and running water and the wind and and deer, which scare me every single time because I forget that deer live in the woods and And actually, they might be there. Um, And I saw an owl a couple of days ago. Um, I haven't posted anything from my walks in the last week, but I'm still going. And they've been important because they really allow me to connect to a different kind of sense perception. Um, And being in the woods helps me to at least quiet those questions for a little while. to be more present with myself and be present with my, I mean, 
there's this one part um, which is kind of like this just steep. It's the green section of Ivy Creek. It's it ain't easy, and every time I'm huffing and puffing by the time I get to the top of it, and it's good because whatever questions I have about my personal life, quiet because I'm literally just trying to breathe. And so I really appreciate the the practice of being out in the natural world because it gives me a way to ground myself, gives me a way to be present with myself. Um, my therapist said to me, which is something that two friends of mine explicitly said to me, you're kind with everybody else except yourself. And it gives me a way to be kind to myself, um, to stop. I have a, a huge sort of, I don't want to ever be egotistical or narcissistic ever. Um, and so I worry often about like, is thinking about yourself narcissistic? Is it egotistical? And so I end up like trying to like care for everybody else. Um, and sometimes I let care for myself go. Um, and it forces me to like, when I'm, you know, huffing and puffing up the side of this very steep incline, I'm caring for myself. And so I, it connects me more deeply to who I am. And I think of myself as deeply connected to other things. Um, I don't think of like myself as an individual. I think the concept of an individual is a deep, deep problem and a philosophical imposition against um, our capacity for relation. Um, and I can't be for other people if I am not for myself. And so really trying to figure out ways to honor um, and be kind to myself um, is one of the reasons why I find myself in the woods, um, trying to listen for nature, trying to be attentive and make sure there are no bears there because there are apparently bears <laughs> there. <laughs> it's like things you don't think about. Um, and then like one day I saw like this black family and he was like, you know, there are bears out here. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and now every day I'm like, you know, it's I do about four and a half miles. And every time I'm like, what if that's a bear? Or like <laughs> weeks ago, there was this really big dog, but I couldn't tell if it was a dog or a dire wolf. If you watch Game of Thrones, <laughs> because it was so that's big. And all I heard was it running through. And I said, okay, I might die right now because <laughs> this thing is running toward me. I saw a collar and I said, okay, I guess it's okay. But I was still very, very wary of walking even near it. Um, <laughs> so these are the things that I have to think about, um, which allows me enough time to be out of my sort of analytical head and allows me to at least um, imagine relations that are taking place in the woods and pay attention to the beauty of flowers and pay attention to the like the felled mm -hmm. trees like all of those things also bring me a lot of joy and so being in the woods and writing those little sermons has been really helpful for me because it gives me um, space to breathe like literal space to breathe that's not in this house and it gives me reprieve and it brings me a different kind of joy and it brings me fully more or more fully to myself as a person. Gosh, thank you so much in so many ways. I feel like in a lot of ways you're, you're so willing to self like excavate and be introspective and bring other people into that. I feel like as you're speaking, I'm, I can relate to a similar experience I have with nature and it's, it's helpful to hear you articulate it because it, 
it kind of reminds me of what it's doing for me often. It's, you know, it's not an easy life at all. Um, but as I've said to other people, I, I would choose this every time. And, you know, I think about what I have given up in terms of the kind of stability I had within religious community, the relationships that I had, you know, I was a musician for several churches in Philadelphia and when I went to college and none of those pastors will even speak to me anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, family members that don't speak, like at my maternal grandmother's funeral, one of my uncles and aunts would not speak to me at all. Um, You like, you give up a lot of things um, in order to try to say, yeah, I I think we should be more just and caring for one another. Um, And so I try to tell people it's never an easy, um, it's not an easy path. And yet it's the path that I would choose every single time because who would I be if I decided to like live a life according to the rubrics and behaviors of things that are violent to me and to everybody else too. Um, I'd rather, I, I have this essay where I say, I'd I, I, I choose to be alone um, every single time. I'd rather choose to be alone if alone meant trying to practice integrity and trying to practice justice, as opposed to having community with folks, but that community is deeply predicated upon me being silent about the deep injustice that we do to one another on a daily basis. So, you know, it ain't an easy life, but it's the one that I chose, or I, it's the one that I continue to choose even in the face of uncertainty. I think one of the themes that has come up a lot that I'm going to be really thinking about as in the days ahead is this idea. And I, and I know Reuven brings us up a lot with me, but this idea of like the individual or mm-hmm. identity and stuff like that and learning. I mean, it's a whole new way for me to, to think of the world because we're so steeped in this sort of idea of the individual mm-hmm. and, uh, and to understand ourselves in terms of relationality and relationships. Um, that's a really nice feeling and, it, and it's interesting that we're talking about loneliness because to a certain extent your choice to not be part of those communities have put you into different communities and yeah. in different relationships that you're prioritizing um well and it's um i say to people now that the loneliness that i experience is not a loneliness of feeling like i lack or feeling like i don't have anything and thus i need i need someone to um complete me that the loneliness that is being talked about both at the level of A and his relationship with Moth and A with his relationship to the church is a loneliness about feeling like there's an abundance and that there's a desire to pour into, there's a desire to outpour, um, there's a desire to share um, with others the thing that has been poured into A, the thing that has been poured into me. And so it's not a, it's not a loneliness that I feel like I am lacking in so much and I need someone to help me feel full. It's that I already feel like I have too much Mm. and it is like a radical waste to like waste it all on me. Like I want to waste it on my favorite sermonizer, Lanise Pinkard talks about the extravagant love of the God figure. And I, you know, I think of it as like an extravagant, or a desire to, to, to be extravagant in love, the desire to be extravagant in care, that it's a, it's a different register for even understanding what loneliness is. 
it's it's the loneliness that desires a social world because the social world can be more full mm. between um the ones who are constituting it together as opposed to um i don't have anything and you don't have anything so let's not have anything together <laughs> <laughs> let's not have anything together uh, I'm just I'm just reading your words back to you, Ashan. But um, it reminds me of this other part from the beginning of the lonely letters. You said uh, these feelings of severance, abandonment, of being left behind come and are felt deeply in nonlinear fashion. They are not mm-hmm. given to progressive temporal measures; rather, they are experienced repetitiously in cycles and fits and starts. Can one consider loneliness to not just be, or to not primarily be, an experience of the individual, but of a social world? What happens when black queerness is what one experiences as connecting to others, but living such a life is what creates or occasions the distancing metaphorically and materially felt from family, friends, and religious communities. Ah, it gives me so much to think about. (laughs) I mean, it's, 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 you know, trying to honor black queer practice as a form of relation means that, you know, everybody ain't gonna, ain't gonna fuck with you. Um, and, you know, once I became okay with that, it's never not disappointing and it's never not heartbreaking when it's another person um, who, who begins to exclude you. Um, it's never not heartbreaking, but you recognize that it is a part of the normative world and its operation that people will do the kinds of exclusionary practices because if they don't, then they will have to be radically transformed themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And you don't want to be transformed um, because we wonder who will I be if I transform into some other kind of thing. And it's like, well, you would be the thing that we were being when we were making the world together. This is what I think about the church. Like the Black Pentecostal church would be the thing that it was being when it was not practicing this exclusive and intentional um, sort of removal of Black queer people. That it, And it would be more beautiful than it is because what it is now is what is what remains after having practiced a violent exclusion of Black queer folks who gave it a vitality and a kind of livingness that it now cannot have because of that exclusion. And so it's like, well, what you would have been is something transformed into the thing that you were already becoming. Mm. And what you are not now is the thing or what you are now is a thing that you have become because you would not allow yourself to be transformed, which is bereft and lacking and sad and depressive. And so like, it's, it's really like trying to say that this is, this practice of exclusion isn't just violent for the one who has been excluded from the community. It also produces a violence on the community that produces the exclusion insofar as you can't deal with truth. You can't deal with justice. You can't deal with joy in a sort of unfettered and full free operation because you're afraid you're going to be changed. We should all be changed constantly and ongoingly. And it's sad to me that we constantly relinquish um, our capa- our own capacities for change with the hopes of like being normal, even though like there is no such thing as normal. And the thing you still change in your practice of excluding the so-called 
um, different thing or in your refusal or your relinquishment of like practices in order to be normal. You still change, you transform into a more terrible version of like the community that you have constituted. Mm. Mm. So that's, that's really what I was trying to get at by talking about that kind of sadness that emerges um, from being excluded from community. It's not just my sadness. And like, I have joy. That's the thing. I have real joy. And um, <laughs> joy that has emerged through community with other folks that have also made the decision, we're going to practice a different kind of relationality that is based or predicated upon honesty and vulnerability and openness, even in the face of a world that thinks honesty, vulnerability, and openness are the things to target for violence. Mm. That's... <sighs> That's what we're doing. And it's not a safe life, but it's a joyful life. Mm. And I'd rather, I'd rather have joy. <laughs> I'm queer. And we were recently kind of had an experience of being like excluded and asked to leave a church situation and asked to leave leadership because of that. Um, and right. I would say that out of that, it's, it's this confusing thing because it's, you don't want to say it's that exclusion that has caused or has given a reason for some joy, but it has kind of forced us into a certain way of relating and a practice of living and a practice of resistance that has allowed probably more joy and more meaning in our spirituality that, that didn't exist without that. And yet it's also this act of violence, Yeah, yeah. you know? So yeah. in hearing your words, I, I really can relate to that and it's it's resonating i think one of the things i really um first of all sorry that you um both experienced that kind of exclusion i think it's again it's 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 heartbreaking every time it happens um even when you can't anticipate it even when you know it will happen it's still heartbreaking and i think the ethical choice is still to make the choice that you made um not to expose yourself to unnecessary or undue violence, but the choice to say, I want to live with a certain kind of integrity. And one of the things I appreciate about my upbringing is that they taught me that you can have joy in sorrow. And so it's not that the occasion of being excluded is what produces the joy. It's that joy is a resource that isn't created, thus not destroyed by the occasion through which it emerges. And so you can have joy in the fact that you find community with others, even after having been excluded, even while experiencing the sorrow of being excluded. And that there's something very loving and beautiful about the fact that joy cannot be um, created or destroyed by the occasion such that you can have joy even at the moment of your being excluded from community. that's actually, for me, what makes the joy so deeply felt, but also what makes the human experience so deeply complex and terrible. It's because we can still experience joy. It's, we don't, you know, we're not transformed into like unfeeling things just, when, just because we have terrible experiences in these communities. Like we still feel joy. We feel still love. We still feel pleasure. We still desire to be in community with other folks. That's what makes it so deeply felt and that's what makes it so difficult um and i think that's why we have to honor the fact that joy is still possible is because we are you know we still experience our creaturely existence and in order to honor that we have to honor the fact that it's deeply complex and it's never never simple 
Um, and always, always, always heartbreaking whenever these practices of exclusion emerge because they don't have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember my therapist once told me uh, that, uh, that, you know, like, you are kind of think of yourself as kind of like uh like you know like your life your consciousness as like a river and that nothing cannot be taken from it and nothing cannot be added to it but you have to live with the fact that you are like it's gonna you know like everything is in there the debris the stones the kind Mm -hmm. of fish and Hmm. yeah sometimes i feel like that's that's how I feel like, <laughs> like a river. <laughs> um, Ashan, uh, how, if you, if you don't like have um, sort of, I, I don't know what word to use, like the power or the mechanism of the church um, behind you, so to speak, like what is, have you found sort of solidarity or community in, academia or like what are the spaces you are finding that encouragement or support <laughs> or do you smile at that or laugh at that um, <laughs> i i found community otherwise mm-hmm. um and i mean some of the community is with folks who are academics and some of the community is with folks who ain't um a lot of my friends who i talk to all the time are folks who um don't have doctorates, some have masters, some don't. Um, And the people who I'm in community with, all of them are kind and all of them are deeply caring. All of them are empathetic. All of them are, um, try to live honestly and try to live a just and um, compassionate life. That's my community. It's not, it's not a community that is produced through a kind of profession. It can't be. Um, I remember going to seminary um, and being really, really disenchanted because um, I thought, oh, we're all here to wrestle with biblical text and, you know, really, really <clears throat> hope for, you know, a more just and, and caring way to think about things like gender and sexuality. And I was very naive. Um, because I thought that a lot of my colleagues were also there to wrestle with biblical text and to think more justly about gender and sexuality. And I found out very quickly that um, a lot of my colleagues in seminary were there because it was a credentialing office through which they could become clergy for um, congregations. And that it was about doing as little work as possible to get the credentials and to not allow for the things that you have to learn in class, in quotes, um, to radically transform um, who you are in order to be more just and loving with your congregation. Um, I was naive. I, I, I didn't think that that was possible. I thought everyone was there to like learn for transformation. Hmm. And... Um, I think that's true of academia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's true. Just in, I'm in this very uh, this private group on Facebook, and people were talking about reading books. And this one person was talking about you know putting certain books in certain places in the apartment so that when the girl comes over, she can see this book and think that he's smart, and so he thinks he's smart. It could be like a way towards sex. And I'm like, these books that you just named are like books about literally transforming your relationship to yourself and to other people. 
And unfortunately, I think that so much of the ways we actually normatively engage one another and the ways that we think about our relationships are through how can I use this as an object through which to get something like sex from you? Or how can this become an, an exchange? Um, not not predicated upon like actual um, care, not predicated on um, learning or being in community, but how can I use this transactionally um, to get something from you? And it was deeply disappointing to find out that that exists in seminary, that exists in academia, that exists um, in Facebook groups that, and it's because we think of ourselves, one, as individuals, and two, it's because we don't actually cherish the fact that we are creatures um, in the world with other folks who have to actually be in community with one another um, in ways that are um, full of justice and um, equity. And so for me, it could not be that I turned to a specific professionalized community in order to find community. It would have to be that my community would be constituted by a whole bunch of misfits and riffraffs and people that don't fit. And that it's only because we don't fit, um, we only don't fit because there's a normative world that says that we all must fit. Mm -hmm. It's our refusal of fitting and it's our inability to fit that made us found each other, made us find each other. And it's us finding each other, which has been really, really um, use or um, sustaining for me in terms of my own capacity to breathe. That is where my community is. Um, yeah. I hope that answers. I remember the first time, uh, I think this was like the end of my first year uh, of MA, where I found out that there is a list circulating among like both the administration, but also the faculty that kind of ranks you. <laughs> of like in terms of like you know your you know and i'm like really like in yeah. class you all talk about like the disciplinary society and like neoliberalism and critique of like commodification but then there's this thing that goes on behind and you're like what? and i think that was also like my first time too kind of like feeling like you guys don't practice what you preach <laughs> when the critique of liberalism or the critique of neoliberalism becomes a way for the neoliberal university to incorporate that critique into itself. Mm. Or like, you know, it's like the critique of, of, of misogyny and the critique of sexism um, becomes the occasion for people to perform a certain kind of, um, for cisgender men to practice um, public performances of feminist sort of politics, mm -hmm. but only in the service of engaging non-feminist practices with other kinds of people. It's like, I'm going to say the language. I'm going to use the words because I'm trying to convince you to have sex with me. I'm not going to think about the language and the words as having an effect on who I am and who I'm supposed to be in the world. I just, um, I gave a talk in February and <laughs> the first words were, do, um, and do you even believe me? And it was about the ways we transform like theory or the ways we transform people's lives into theory in order for it to not have an effect on our life and uh, in order to remove the actual, it, the piece is called Black Queer Grief and one day I'll publish it if I ever finish the actual essay version. But it's like, yeah, we don't talk about queer theory just because it's fun and something to put on a CV. One of the reasons we talk about this shit is because it's supposed to have an effect on you 
Mm -hmm. and me and what we think about relation and your continued refusal of having it affect the way you think about yourself in the world or your continued abstraction or the continued transformation of it into an abstraction of thought is itself violent. And that is like the, that's the thing that we're constantly confronting. And it's the thing that is so deeply heartbreaking is that people will read the lonely letters and still somehow come away with this like, well, I'm a straight man or I'm a straight woman. And I'm like, okay, but like, what does that even mean? I won't talk about it. There's a movie that I really love and it's about queerness. And like the filmmaker, every interview that the filmmaker gave was about how he's the straight man. And I'm like, it doesn't make sense for the film that you made for you to continue to make this claim because the film is about the problem of those categories. Mm. And yet you want to, in your interviews, every time announce to the public, I'm a straight man. And it's like, so what's the point of the movie then? Because, yeah, so, and and so all that to say that the, the problem of sort of transforming things into abstractions and the refusal of transformation is not just something that happens in academia, it's not just something that happens in, in seminary. It's something that we are all sort of um, encouraged to do by, in the normative world. And so really trying to wrestle over and really sort of shift our imaginations and shift our epistemologies is heavy and difficult work. And um, it ain't easy and people don't want to do it. <laughs> what, you, 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 want, you don't want to say what movie it is? No. Okay. <laughs> That's probably wise. <laughs> I didn't know what movie it is. So what you were saying anybody though. Anybody listening. What you were saying uh-huh. though also reminded me that um Reuven is at my house and judging my books. <laughs> uh, First of all, they're in the basement, so you're not even putting them out for display. <laughs> we have those ones by our stairs. Those are like our most recently read, you know. Um uh man this this is this conversation is everything i would want this podcast to be about you know it's just so good and i and ashan like one of the things that um has been sort of a point of conversation i guess i wouldn't even say tension is the length of our podcast because they're usually about two hours and then in the early days when we started because we've been doing this for almost two years now people are like it's too long you know and we're like it's not long enough you know, we're like, we, we, these topics can just go on and on. And so I'm so grateful that just in terms of your spirit, um, uh, I, I'm, we talk a little bit about personality tests, but I'm, I'm an INFP. It sounds like you're an INTP. Okay. Macy thinks they're an INFP, but is sometimes unsure. I, I feel like I am an ENFP. Yeah. COVID <laughs> has exposed my extroverted need. <laughs> I need my people. I don't need extroversion though. Gosh, yeah. though. <laughs> that might that might be an age thing too, though, because as I, I just get more and more calm and introverted as I get older. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think there's something about our personalities that can just sit and have conversations like this all day and and feel very satisfied and happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, man. I hope so- I'll send you emails every once in a while, inviting you to be back on. I hope someday we can have you back on and just, but also want to respect your time. And I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful you were able to do this today. This was fun. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I absolutely. 
okay, I think we're gonna end with a reading. Is that cool? Um, only if you want. Only if you but. want. Yeah. <laughs> this is a letter I've never read out loud. Okay. So I guess I should say the first, not the first, the second time I ever uh, I ever gave an academic talk, I cried. <laughs> um, I was reading from my master's thesis, which was about um, it was about black queerness and religion, and I had interviewed a bunch of people, and I was reading what two of the folks were saying about their experiences of church and um, sort of the violence of religiosity. And I started crying and um, I was not prepared to cry. And I cried a lot of talks now, um, just a lot. Um, and so if I do cry, that's my preface for if I do cry. Cry away. <laughs> this is a four page letter. Um, it's T9 for anyone that is actually interested, but <clears throat> it's in the tongues chapter. Dear Moth, the problem, of course, is the relationship between being and becoming, or maybe even the possessive apostrophic and that which is possessed. You did not want to be queer, still do question it, still do wonder, still do study at the seminary. So regardless of how you felt as I told you, you thought, not felt, definitely thought, you were becoming something other than yourself, as if we ever aren't nothing other than the continued movement and descent, the perpetual searcher and rupture, the dehiscence that emerges. If we are anything we occupy, if we occupy any stability, it is in that the core is itself nothing but flux. Tones up, chords down, sounds that cut and cut sonic. You did not want to be possessed by the becoming, by the fundamental choreosonic centrifugative emergence of an irreducible togetherness. And it was sensed in the ways I'd hold you and you'd tense up every single time. I'd put my arms around you and ever so faintly you'd shudder a bit, your flesh physically reacting wanting to throw down and off and move out from that which was becoming too good. You were wary of the sustenance of such becoming, thought that emergence would eventually subside and you'd be, and you'd be some shit you didn't recognize and wouldn't be able to properly hear. But isn't that the beauty of the apostrophic possession? It's not in the possession of property as private. That's a kind of settler colonial logic that is always also violent. What I'm thinking here is the way that possession and plurality against singularity tether to one another. One could, of course, say the shoes that belong to Betty, or one could say Betty's shoes. There's this wonderful little group of short stories by Faulkner titled Go Down Moses, and I was impressed and totally into this one character who was referenced as Tommy's Turl. In the story, he's a, he is enslaved, but on the run, running yet again in almost a dance of game and play with those who enslaved him toward the woman he loved. He was Tommy's child, Tommy's beautiful, beautiful child. And I had a colleague who once at a conference panel argued that to be Tommy's turtle was to be a fundamental problem. Of course, I don't think of Tommy's turtle. Of course, I don't think Tommy's turtle thought of himself that way. 
He likely looked at his movement as exuberant, as ecstatic, against individuals and institutions that attempted to rob him of that possibility. On the panel, my colleague argued that, be, that because of such, because of the status of the woman law during enslavement, that Tomey's Turrell highlighted a more general sort of irreducible dispossession of black folks, that he made very real the fact that black people are melancholy and abject because we couldn't at that time and still can't today possess children, property, whatever. Tomey could never claim that which she bore and this inability was a, the disarticulation of motherhood or some shit. Tomey's only relation to Turrell would be through negation and Turrell by dispossession, or so the argument went. And there were, unfortunately, a lot of affirmative nods to such declarations. Let's just say I never really liked that theory, and I think people misread Du Bois much too much. Folks sort of skip over the fact that his explication of a strange experience of being a problem came after he said that the question, how does it feel to be a problem, was unasked of him was an indirectness put to him. Even the asking was a sort of refusal to ask. Or you might say the question showed up with its own dispossessive force. He says, of course, quote, between me and the other world, there's ever an unasked question, unasked by some through, del through feelings of delicacy, by others through the difficulty of rightly framing it, all nevertheless flutter around it. They approach me in a half-hesitant sort of way, eye me curiously or compassionately, and then instead of saying directly, how does it feel to be a problem? They say, I know an excellent colored man in my town, or I fought at Mechanicsville, or do not these Southern outrages make your blood boil, end quote. <clears throat> and him saying this is important, beginning with the declaration that there are worlds, plural, because how can it be between me and the other world if there were no world of which he could speak as his own? And he lingers with the fact of the unasked question as showing up through an indirectness of address, a kind of angularity of racial feeling, we might say, here the feeling being politis. Maybe blackness is the sense of question and the music is the elaboration of the angularity of racial feeling, perhaps. You know, I don't think that Du Bois I don't think that Du Bois's Negroes thought of themselves or ourselves really as fundamentally problems or problematics to themselves or in the world of his own, but it is the movement itself against the stillness and abstraction, the epistemological substratum of racial capitalism that is posed against us in the guise of policy procedures and Rockefeller laws and Rodney King beatings that is supposed to make us feel problematic. People take up Du Bois's question of the being of problem without thinking more about how this state of being is exteriority enforced and placed, how it befalls the one who would be so problematic. It's anterior being, it's imposed being, it ain't then black being at all. If a problem, it is only because, it is only so because the other world that produces the unasked question. Of course, maybe we could recalibrate if we want to think from the position of the so-called and ask ourselves, what does becoming problematic feel like? I think that's a bit closer to what you and I were doing. And I think Faulkner was smarter than to posit Tomey's Turl as some sort of being rather than a fundamental becoming. The difference between what my friend Autumn thinks of, thinks as progress versus process, where becoming is certain procession. And I think we can know this because the story starts with Tomey's Turl 
moving and running and escaping. He was reaching for something, loving for something, creating a path, constituting as a way of life. Maybe possession by one like Tomi critiques the notion of the ways in which folks try to own their children as possession itself. It's not that Terrell does not bear relation to or have an intimacy with Tomi. Rather, when constituted, rather than constituting as Tomi's Terrell, the only thing he could do was run, not from Tomi, but from the institution that would both name and misname him by notions of self-possession. His running for love was also and likewise a giving of himself away. When I wanted to have becoming with you, when I held you, though you learned to suppress or regulate it as much as possible, there was something you had to fight, some exterior, some way of being that befell and continues to befall. And I felt it too, when you hold me, fought it, didn't want it though I desired it. I shuddered too, winced too. It's not that I don't understand, I understand too much. We might call it theology or religion or history or ethics, wanting to be loved by our family and mine. We have both been indoctrinated in a world, in language, and thus a xenolalic utterance of settler possession and displacement and the portability of concepts, and in the idealization of the individual, one who owns and possesses oneself most fully, the ability to control oneself and the many things around us. I think your shudder was twofold. You love my arms and warmth, but when that yielding to such feeling would also mean throwing off the ruse that you'd gotten used to telling people, that you didn't need anyone, that you were cool with being single, that you didn't want love. Me would of necessity become we. And it happened ever so wonderful, wonderfully and for a long time, we worked. I think Faulkner is a quintessential Southern writer and I don't think Tommy's Terrell ever spoke, but I've been thinking a lot about Southern accents and the North's positing of itself as cosmopolitan. By now we're both well acquainted with that one particular US that one particular former US president, how he was cast in the media as inept and stupid, and this by way of his voice, by the accent he, utilizes, he utilized when he spoke. This happens as much in audiovisual reproductions as well as in texts and transcripts of speech. And I find the latter, the transcribed word from spoken to written intriguing, not because he didn't often say M instead of them, he indeed, he indeed did all of the time and we both heard it. But it is curious to me because other folks who have likewise served as president or other positions of power and authority have not been transcribed with such speech text. It's as if the media wanted to show this is but another way to know that this guy is stupid. Do we even give attention to how accents are racially and class coded ideas? I wish that M wasn't used to index some, some purported inherent inability to grasp knowledge. But I am more intrigued by how the North conceives of itself as a place that was and is progressive, how they lacked enslavement. Of course, we know this to be a farce and particularly after the Fugitive Slave Act, each state in the union effectively became a slave state. But the North is often cast as progressive, often if we pay enough attention through the way accent is used in media. I am admittedly thinking of this now because recently at a bar, Someone told me that I do not sound as if I am from an urban area because I sound educated and clean. I almost had a fight right there in the bar. The North can conceive of itself as cosmopolitan and progressive because they, quote, never had slavery. And never having slavery is never having had the close, intimate relations to Blacks who share in that Southern accent. The North, I think, gives itself a non-Black accent 
and the whites in the South are sullied because they speak with such close intimacy with Blacks. But we already know that the North as a concept is a ruse and farce. And of course, this depends on being rather than becoming. I wonder what being is philosophically when it is fundamentally becoming or when it is always in process, begotten rather than made. I hope that somehow you know that I never wanted to possess you, that I only wanted to be becoming with you. There is a difference. Maybe. A. Thank you. It brought up so many feelings and memories. It did. Especially the accent part. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so Thank you. much, Ashan. Thank you. This was fun. I appreciate it. Oh, so fun. Well, I'm going to keep reposting all your stuff on our Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, Sounds yeah. good. Um, well, and yeah, I, I just hope quarantine isn't too lonely. Um, and uh, that you keep having your walks and um, finding ways to enjoy yourself and be with community. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. it so much. Yeah, yeah we hope into a bear yeah yeah don't run into i hope i don't find a bear yes <laughs> no bears. No bears. <laughs>